Beloved, this morning our Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 15. We will read verses 1 through 10 and then skip down to verses 17 and 18. This is the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Now down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. And now over to Galatians, where our reading comes from chapter 2, 11 through 21. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, as we said at the beginning, this is not a normal service for us. This is a special Reformation service. If you are visiting with us, we do not normally do things this formally. I certainly normally don't wear my preaching dress. At least that's what Hannah and Lydia called it when they were little. But we are doing something special today because there was something recovered 503 years ago. A recovery that involved very important, in fact, one of the most central truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. When we think about the Reformation, hopefully we think about those five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, the Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. Sola Fide, by faith alone. Solus Christus, through Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, all to the glory of God alone. But even with this recovery of what Calvin described um, as the principal hinge by which religion is supported, what Martin Luther described as the article by which the church stands or falls, this doctrine of justification by faith alone is not simply about doctrine. It is just as much about the mission of the church. The doctrine of faith alone not only helps us in understanding the centrality of the gospel according to the scripture, it also it secures for us a biblical participation in understanding what God is doing and then participating with him as he invited, has invited us to do. This recovery of the gospel at the time of the Reformation, therefore, it is so vital and it is so central for us, not only because of its truth, but because of the way it defines and changes how we live and participate in the mission of Jesus Christ. But what was recovered or what was being dealt with at the Reformation in the 16th century, it wasn't the first time that this issue was being dealt with because the very issues that the Reformers were, were dealing with in the 16th century, we see all the way back in the first century in this interaction between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. Paul is writing about an account that took place uh, at the church in Antioch. Paul and Peter happened to be there together. Peter had left Jerusalem 
And on his departure from Jerusalem, we know that Peter had had the vision on the rooftop where the Lord showed him that lowered the sheet and showed him all the wonderful barbecue and all the different forms of barbecue on that sheet. And said to Peter, eat. Now, Peter reacted like a northerner. I was like, well, no, we don't want delicious barbecue. No, I'm just joking. But he responded, these are unclean. He responded with the teaching of God. God, you have declared these things unclean in the Mosaic Covenant. And so the food laws prevent me. And God says, now, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, you get to eat bacon. This is amazing. Peter has this vision. We know that because of this, Peter changes his perspective about gospel ministry. And we know that he begins a ministry that is not only focused on the Jews, but also focused on Gentiles. In fact, at the Jerusalem Council, we know that Peter argued that Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ, on the basis of faith alone, they should be considered Christians. The problem is that Peter was still trying to figure out how to flesh out the doctrine he believed. In this exchange in Antioch, what we know is that there are these big wigs from Jerusalem. These are guys who are coming from James. James is one of the biggest voices within the church right now. And the church in Jerusalem was considered like the home base. And so these guys come as representatives of James. These are big time dudes, right? The president of a theological seminary is speaking at Midway. That's supposed to be a big deal. It's a big deal because of his ordination, not because of his vocation as president of a seminary. But so often we do that, don't we? We make things bigger than they are. Peter has done that. And because of that, these guys that are coming from James, what Peter does is he contradicts the gospel with the way that he lives, not with the words that he preaches. And Paul thinks that this is so important that he confronts him to his face in front of people. These Judaizers have come and as a result, Peter is separating himself from Gentile believers, whom he believes to be equally Christians as Jewish believers. But he has separated from them. These Judaizers that have come up from Jerusalem, by the way, what a Judaizer was, was someone who said, yes, if you're going to be a, uh, be a Christian, it is absolutely grounded by, by faith in Jesus Christ. It is absolutely founded that you're going to receive Christ, that you're going to take that finished ministry of Jesus and you're going to accept it for yourself. Uh, and so you have to trust and you have to believe. 
But if you really want to be extra spiritual and really become part of the core, then you receive Jesus Christ, but also you need to practice the food laws from the Mosaic Covenant. Yes, receive Jesus, Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus Christ, his ministry, believe in him, trust him, accept him, but make sure you get circumcised. Yes, believe in Jesus Christ, but make sure that you practice the cleansing rituals. Yes, believe in Jesus Christ, but keep going to the temple and engaging in sacrifice. You see, the, the Judaizers were those who believed that someone is a Christian on the basis of their faith in Jesus Christ Plus, plus Jewish customs and practices. If you do these extras, then you are really in the camp. Beloved, this is exactly what the Reformers were dealing with in the 16th century with the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, Yes, the ministry of Jesus. Yes, the sacrifice of Jesus. Yes, the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, the ongoing mediation of Jesus. Absolutely, this is what our faith is. You believe, you trust, yes. Plus. Yes, Jesus, plus. Gospel confusion, fear, and control. This was a result of the Judaizing ministry, which Paul unfolds for us in this entire letter of Galatians. It was the situation that the Reformers were dealing with with the Roman Catholic Church. Because the doctrine of justification had been confused, where it was now Jesus plus something else, the result was fear. How do I know if I've done enough? How do I know if I've bought enough indulgences? How do I know if I've said enough Hail Marys? How do I know if I'm praying to Mary enough? How do I know that she likes me and is, is speaking on my behalf to Jesus? How do I know that the, that the extra righteousness that the saints you know, had accumulated, how do I know that some of that is being given to me? How do I know? How do I know? How do I know? What if my local priest doesn't like me? How do I know if I go to him to confess sin? How do I know if he'll actually forgive me on behalf of Jesus? And what if my local priest is like the normal local priest at this day and time where he doesn't even know Latin to be able to read the scripture, let alone the official liturgical documents, how do I know that he's saying the right thing on my behalf? I don't speak Latin. He doesn't speak Latin. Everything's being done in Latin. Where does that leave me? And you can imagine that when the motivation that is given to you is repent or face hail fire forever, and by the way, you need us to keep you from that hellfire. Fear, control, confusion. But, never fear, right? 
there was always purgatory. You always had your ability to, I don't know, thousands, millions of years to, to burn some stuff off. Fear, confusion, control. And it had two effects. It had the effect of those being ministered to, and it had the effect of what the ministry itself had become. You see that? What Peter has done here is two things. One, he has confused the gospel for himself and for those that he is ministering to. He has confused the gospel because the center point of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul himself unfolds for us here in response to this situation is that he reminds Peter, Peter... You don't pull away from Gentile believers because some spiritual elites come around. You don't pull away from Gentile believers because you value these guys and their opinion of you more than you value the opinion of the Gentiles, let alone value their lives to continue to serve them well. What Paul is talking about here is the problem and the blessing of acceptance. The reason, the problem of what has happened here is that when Paul says your life is contradicting the gospel, that point where he's contradicting is by not enfleshing the doctrine of justification. The issue here is not that Peter's being mean, although he was. The issue here, according to Paul, is not that he's being unfriendly, even though Peter is being unfriendly. The issue here isn't bad hospitality, even though that is going on. The issue here is that the doctrine of justification has been contradicted in the way that he's living. Now, why the doctrine of justification? Why is that the doctrine that Paul addresses here? Why not fellowship? Why is it the doctrine of justification? Because what Peter has done is he has contradicted that central element of justification, which is this, acceptance with God. What is the doctrine of justification? It is that, that doctrine, it is that truth that because of the completed work of Jesus Christ and because his perfect obedience is imputed to you and because his sacrifice is imputed to you, the result is that all your sins are forgiven and you are accepted before God as righteous. God created us to be one with him. God created us for himself. He created us because it, he derived joy by making us in order to fellowship with us. And not because of us, but because he decided that he wanted to do this. And we were created for him and we were created within this, this beautiful relationship where there was perfect acceptance between the triune God and his creation, Adam and Eve. 
And yet because of sin, what, what had happened? It introduced alienation. It broke the relationship. It broke the fellowship. It broke the acceptance. And where Adam and Eve were acceptable to God and they were accepted by God, because of sin, they lost that. They are now sinful. They are no longer acceptable. They have made themselves the enemies of God. They are no longer accepted by him. The problem is we have a god shaped craving for acceptance that goes back to the creation that does not go away with the fall. What the fall does is it trains that craving to go after acceptance with the wrong things or in the wrong ways, right? This is what we call idolatry. Idolatry is taking something and either adding it to God or using it to replace God in order to pursue that God-shaped craving of satisfaction and acceptance. It is this, this idol of acceptance that leads us to pursue these things in the wrong way, or we pursue them in the wrong things, and we pursue them in the wrong ways. There is this inherent desire within us that is there because God created it within us where we long to be accepted. We long to be a part of a group. We want to be part of the right group. And some of you think that means being Georgia fans. We want to be part of the right group. And look, sports teams are part of that. Political parties are part of that. Social movements are part of that. Fraternities, sororities, private golf clubs, social groups, social media. These are all ways that we can mistakenly try to fulfill that God-given desire for acceptance by looking for it in the wrong places. The problem is, just like you see with the Apostle Peter is when we fail to harness this instinct, this craving, and we pursue it in the wrong things or we pursue it in the wrong ways, we end up trying to push others down in order to raise ourselves up. The result is that it leads to snobbish exclusivism. It enforces of classism and exclusivism, experiencing satisfaction of being part of something exclusive. I'm part of fill in the blank. And it's the best. And beloved, this is not something that we only do outside the church. So often it is something we do within the church. We are here celebrating the Reformation, working through a service with the elements from a Reformation worship service written by John Calvin because we value that. But how often does our Calvinism go beyond simply a way of designating how we approach the Scripture and the gospel, and it become this label by which we see ourselves as being better Christians than other Christians. I'm a Calvinist, 
Well, what does that mean? Oh, it means that I take the Bible seriously because the others don't. That's the implication. I'm a Calvinist. I take worship seriously as if no one else does. I'm a Calvin. I take theology seriously. So seriously, I'll argue till I'm red in the face. I'll punch you. I'm just joking. Oh, I hope not. It becomes so easy to take something that is good, something that is true, and use it for something that it's not intended to be. And our Calvinism itself can be an exhibition of the idol of acceptance. Church numbers. Church budget. How many missionaries have you sent? How many missionaries are you supporting? What's your membership role look like? How do the people dress in your church? Are they part of those slacker Christians that wear jeans? Or they take the faith real seriously and get really uncomfortable with the way that they dress because it's almost as if the more uncomfortable you are with the way you dress in church, it's almost like a form of penance. I'm just joking. But even how we dress in church can become an, an identity marker that we, used, that we used to perceive ourselves as being superior and more acceptable to God. What job you have. I mean, I can go down the list, right? Well, if you have a certain job in the church, you're seen as more valuable to the church. The idol of acceptance. We go after it. And we pursue it in the wrong things, in the wrong ways. And the result is that we will push others down in order to raise ourselves but, beloved, this is exactly what Jesus Christ was overcoming for us in his incarnation and ministry here on earth. Jesus Christ came to the earth out of devotion to his heavenly Father. And as he lived out his life here on earth, he lived out perfect devotion to his father, where everything about everything that was true about who Jesus was and everything that was true about what Jesus did, it was an expression of his acceptance with his heavenly father, an acceptance he had enjoyed for all eternity that was now put before us in a God-man, Jesus Christ, so that his devotion to the Father and his acceptance with the Father led him to use that not for his own benefit, but for yours. Where he willingly gave up glory for a time in order to humble himself and come as a servant. Where he humbled himself and he lived under the law. He humbled himself and he went through the problems of this life and he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross when your sin and my sin was put on him and where our sin was imputed to him beloved his righteousness his devotion his acceptance within the Godhead was imputed to you justification 
And this justification, Paul reminds us, is not by works of the law. It is by faith. Beloved, what we see here in Peter's idol of acceptance is not that he rejects biblical teaching, but his life makes his teaching really hard to understand and to believe. And the result is he values the acceptance from these bigwigs from Jerusalem, forgetting that he already has acceptance with the biggest bigwig there is, and that's the triune God. And because he forgets the acceptance he already has with the eternal God, what he does is he then rejects Gentile believers whom God has already accepted. You see, this is not, the doctrine of justification is not simply about how we interact with God personally with regards to our salvation. It very much has to do with the life that we live so that we do not contradict the gospel of Jesus Christ through and in our mission. Do you see that? If we all have an equal standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it is impossible to climb the ladder. Because in Jesus Christ, you are already raised up and seated with him in the heavenlies. Guess what? There's nowhere else to go. There's no better place. You are perfectly acceptable as righteous of, as Jesus Christ in the, before the face of the heavenly father. And you dwell there with him by faith even right now as those raised up and seated with him in the heavenlies. There is no further heights to which you can achieve. And because of Jesus Christ, and because justification is by faith alone and not by works, guess what? You can't lose your justification either. You can't change it. You can't alter it. You can't lessen it. You come into this place every week having sinned, having rejected the gospel in so many different ways. And yet God says to you every week, come and enter into the heavenly places by faith with me. Enter into the singing of my song. Enter into the singing of the angels and departed saints because you are fully accepted regardless of your sin because of my son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, you can't go higher and you cannot go lower. Do you get the implication of that? Peter thought that he was going to be going lower in status if he was seen fellowshipping with Gentiles. He couldn't go lower because he was already acceptable in Jesus Christ. The, doc, the reason that Paul responds to this circumstance, which seems like a social issue, with the doctrine of justification is because the doctrine of justification is not just theology. It is life, and it is mission. The church is the one place where members are to come 
and to be able to freely and consciously think of themselves and think of one another in no other way other than the light of the acceptance that we have in Jesus Christ. That it is within this body of believers that we all have the same standing before God. We all have the same standing before one another. We have all received Christ to the same degree. We all have an equal share in the resurrection life of Jesus and his eternal exaltation with the Father. That is why there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. We have all received in Christ together to the same degree the mystery that God is making one people out of many nations. There is equal membership in the household of God. There is equal access to the throne of grace. The problem here for Peter is not that he desires acceptance. It's the way, it's what he's looking for acceptance in. It's the way that he looks for that acceptance. What we have because of our union with Jesus Christ is everything. And the calling that we have is regardless of your political, socioeconomic, racial, or any other category, we all stand equally acceptable and accepted in Jesus Christ. When you think about other Christians that are part of other theological traditions, how do you think of them? Is this how you think of them? When you think of the Baptists, the Methodists, the Charismatics, I could go on. But when you think about them, is the first thought that comes to your mind, this is a brother with whom I have an equal standing in Jesus Christ. Or are you tempted to, be, to think, that's great, but they're not as spiritual as I am because they don't take the Bible as seriously as I do. Now, maybe I'm the only one in here that does that. I highly doubt it. Beloved, if we can't embody the gospel within the church, how can we embody the gospel for the world? The doctrine of justification by faith alone, it absolutely needed to be recovered. Not only so that you and I could experience that free acceptance before God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us, but so that we can rightly be engaged in embodying that gospel to one another within the church 
and to those who are outside. The doctrine of justification is not only about truth for your salvation, it is that central hinge by which a local ministry of the church stands or falls. Our conduct must be in step with the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, our conduct confuses our proclamation and it hinders our mission. And so the gospel must be central to our own self-identification and acceptance before the Lord so that we do not allow this basic desire for acceptance to lead us away from what God would have, us, have for us. Because as Paul says here very clearly, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. But then Abraham said, how do I know, Lord, that what you have promised I will receive? And so to embolden, to nurture, to strengthen that faith that is counted as righteousness, God gave him a bloody sign that he could see and smell and that he could watch God in the form of that pot pass between the pieces and to know through that sign that God's word could be trusted because it is true. And so how do you know, beloved, that this doctrine of justification by faith alone, how do you know that it is there for your acceptance? Well, the Lord has given us a bloody sign in the bread and the cup so that we would have our faith that is counted unto righteousness be affirmed to be nurtured, and to be strengthened. Not only so that we would stand secure in Christ, but so that we would not confuse our mission in this coming week. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, you have promised to grant our requests, which we make to you, in the name of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, by whose teaching and that of his apostles we have also been taught to gather together in his name with the promise that he will be in the midst of us and will be our intercessor with you to obtain all those things for which we agree to ask on earth. We heartily ask you, our gracious God and Father, in the name of our only Savior and Mediator, to grant us the free pardon of our faults and offenses through your infinite mercy, and to draw and lift up our hearts, our thoughts, our desires to you in such a way that we may be able to call upon you with our whole heart agreeably to your good pleasure and your only reasonable will. We pray to you, O Heavenly Father, for all 
the, those in government over us, your servants to whom you have entrusted the administration of justice. We pray to you also, faithful Father and Savior, for all those whom you have ordained pastors of your faithful people, to whom you have entrusted the care of souls and the ministry of the Holy Gospel. We pray to you now, most gracious and merciful Father, for all men everywhere, as it is your will to be acknowledged as the Savior of the whole world through the redemption wrought by your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant those who are still estranged from the knowledge of Christ, being in the darkness and captivity of error and ignorance. May you bring them out by the illumination of your Holy Spirit and the preaching of your gospel to the straight way of salvation, which is known to you, or which is to know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Likewise, O God of all comfort, we commend to you all those whom you visit and chasten with cross and tribulation, whether by poverty, prison, sickness, or banishment, or any other misery of the body or affliction of the spirit. And finally, O God and Father, grant also to those who are gathered here in the name of your Son, Jesus, to hear his voice and keep his holy supper, that we may acknowledge truly, without hypocrisy, what perdition is ours by nature, what condemnation we deserve and heap upon ourselves from day to day by our unhappy and disordered lives. And so to the end that he dwelling in us may mortify our old Adam, renewing us for a better life, by which your name, according as it is holy and worthy, may be exalted and glorified everywhere and in all places, that we with all creatures may give you true and perfect obedience. Grant that we who walk in the love and fear of your name may be nourished by your goodness and supply us with all things necessary and expedient to eat our bread in peace. May it please you to sustain us by your power for the time to come, that we may not stumble because of the weakness of our flesh, and especially as we of ourselves are so frail that we are not able to stand fast for a single moment, while on the other hand, we are continually beset and assailed by so many enemies. The devil, the world, sin, and our own flesh never ceasing to make war upon us, will you strengthen us by your Holy Spirit and arm us with your grace that we may be able to resist all temptations firmly and persevere in this spiritual battle until we shall attain full victory to triumph at last in your kingdom with our captain and our protector, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.